Hey everyone, and welcome to the Anna Krusik Podcast. You are listening to episode number 23. Today on tap, we are blurring the lines and going beyond pedagogy labels in general music. Now, you might be looking at this title and thinking, well, wait a minute, last week you had an episode all about Kodai-inspired teaching, and if you had a crystal ball to look forward to the rest of the season, you would see that I have a lot of interviews with people who are experts in their fields and are particularly drawn to one pedagogical approach. But my hope both with this episode and with all of those interviews, especially last week's, which I hope that you've already listened to, you'll start to notice that a lot of these approaches work together for a common goal. So today I'm just going to take a little bit of time to review a couple that I have identified with and that I've studied and share some of the things that I think and some of the things that I use and some of the things that I love about teaching general music from different approaches. You're listening to the Anna Krusik Podcast with Anne Molesky, the music teacher and curriculum designer behind AnnaKrusik.com. This podcast is all about making your music teacher life more purposeful, sequential, and joyful, so you can take a breath and love each and every moment you spend making music with kids. So grab a cup of coffee and kick up your feet, because it's time for another episode. Okay, guys, so before I get started today, I just wanted to share a little bit about an exciting project I've been working on for the last several months. So the Anna Krusik podcast has been invited to be a member of the Music Teacher Development Podcast Network, or MUTED, for short. And the Music Teacher Development Podcast Network is a network of podcasts with the common goal of providing support for music education in the form of audio on-demand programming designed by and for music educators. So TAP is one of four podcasts. It is the only general music podcast as of right now that is part of the network. Um, The other three are maybe more focused on secondary education. Um, There's a couple band and choir folks um, kind of in the mix and orchestra as well. And so I just want to tell you about the other podcasts in the network. So the first is Amuse, a music educators podcast. And this is for folks from my side of the country out on the West Coast talking about different things that they do each week in their classrooms. They talk about their big wins, their mistakes, and all of that good stuff. It really feels like you are sitting in the room with them having a conversation about what happened with your week. It's a really, really great podcast. Um, another is Everything Band with Mark Connor, and he brings on composers and conductors and performers for wind and percussion music and he has somebody new each and every time and it's really neat to hear how people approach um, band music whether they are a composer conductor or performer um, with kind of the same common goal in mind and then last but not least is source material which is hosted by Sean Dennison Smith and he brings on a composer to talk about their compositions and Aside from just talking about the background of the music, they also give hints about why they compose it the way they did, how it should be performed, and then a full analysis of the piece. So yeah, I'm really excited to be a part of this group. I have really enjoyed working with all these folks the last several months, and I hope that you go check out mutedpodcast.com. 
Okay, so let's get into this episode. The reason that I felt like I really needed to come on and talk about this is because this past August, I mentioned briefly in a previous episode, inside of the Anacrusic Podcast Facebook community, we did a brief book study with um, Dr. Brent Gall and Dr. Carlos Abril's book that they edited called Teaching General Music. And within that book, there is more information than you ever thought you needed, but you do, about teaching general music, including different pedagogical approaches. And for the purposes of today's episode, I'm really going to focus on four, and that's going to be Kodai, Orff, Gordon, and Delcroze. Now, I realize that there are other really, really important facets and pedagogical approaches to music education, like pure constructivist teachings and also world music pedagogy, which we did discuss in the book study inside the group in August. But for the purposes of this episode and not making it be too, too long, let's just stick to those big four. So the other reason that I wanted to talk about this today is because I've thought a lot in the last several years, and I've talked about it briefly here and there on on the show, but I've thought a lot about what my identity looks like as a music teacher. And when I really stop and think about it, I think it's that I'm a music teacher. And a lot of times I find that some of my colleagues, and this is a little bit of a sweeping generalization, but I find that some of my colleagues are really concerned with what box they belong in. And as I've told you before, I don't want to be put into a box, but if you had to label me something because of the structure of my teaching, I identify very largely with Kodai-inspired teaching. But that is only one facet of who I am as an educator and only one way that I approach things pedagogically and philosophically in the classroom. And so, you know, it's interesting because the title of this podcast, I wasn't sure what I wanted to call it because I didn't want to say, oh, like, I'm going to give a review of each of these approaches or I'm going to say this is what it looks like if you are in this box. Like, no, that's not the point of this at all. The point is I was inspired by reading from these experts in um, Dr. Galt and Dr. Abril's book about each approach. I was inspired yet again to talk about how I sort of see each of these philosophies or these approaches as they apply directly to me. And I thought that maybe that would be useful to you if you're looking to just put more tools in your toolbox, if you're just looking to be more informed about what other styles of teaching might look like and get some ideas for what might best serve you and your children in your classroom. And just really, really briefly, I want to share something that might seem tangential, but I promise it it applies. And it actually came to me right before I recorded this episode. So I was eating lunch and I um, was listening to a podcast called Rad Parenting, which I'll link in the show notes um, if you're interested in checking it out if you have kiddos. And the reason that I've been listening to it, this is a total aside, totally tangential, but the reason I'm listening to it is because my daughter is almost 14 months and into everything and starting to throw fits. And I want to make sure that I am doing the best that I can for her. So, of course, I'm turning to books and magazines and podcasts because that's how I roll um, to think about different styles of parenting, different things um, that I can do to best foster her growth. And they were talking today on an episode about judging other parents. And I mean, that's like a whole topic we won't get into. But it was interesting to me as I was listening how I thought sometimes that 
that goes into every facet of our life, but I especially find it here and there when I speak with other music teachers. And I was talking to an ORF colleague of mine recently, and as we were talking, that individual um, mentioned something um, that made me mention one of my Kodai colleagues. And as I mentioned one of my Kodai colleagues, that individual I was speaking with said, oh, I don't, I don't know that person. And I said, oh, like they do this with the Kodai course or the Kodai thing. And that individual I was speaking with said, oh, Kodai people and I don't get along. And I don't bring that up to make <laughs> that person feel bad if they're listening or for, um, for anybody to think this, that, or the other thing about ORF people or Kodai people because I've had the opposite happen as well where I have been speaking with Kodai folks and they say, oh, ORF people and I don't get along. And first of all, that is like a huge sweeping generalization. And second of all, I, I wonder a lot of things about that, but mostly what was it that made you be so turned off? And what was it that made you think that that person was the only representation of that approach or that philosophy? Because I don't think that I am a purist in any sense of the word. Um, I can put on that hat, but I mean, we could get into a whole crazy conversation about what is a purist. But but my point in saying all of this is is that whole judging mentality about which is better and which which is superior, or this, that, and the other thing is really not the point of anything. I mean, if what we're doing is being music teachers and being the best music teachers that we can be for our children, who cares? <laughs> I mean, I hate to say it like that, but y'all, who cares? Like, I am a music teacher. I teach music. I teach music to children. And if the best way for me to do that is to do it with Bob's music method, then okay. And if the best way for me to do it is with Kodai or with Orf or with Delcros or with MLT, then okay. As long as I am doing what's best for kids in my situation and for my teaching heart because I have to be fulfilled as a musician and as a teacher in order to bring that for my children, right? Then who cares? And so, you know, that episode of Rad Parenting, going back to that, they the hosts on there are hilarious and very wise. <laughs> and they were talking about how, you know, when parents judge each other, it's like, okay, in a sense, we're all co-parenting. Like everybody's kid is going to work with everybody's kid in one dynamic or another. Like our kids go to school together. They go to gymnastics together. They go to dance together. They go to the playground, like whatever. And you know what? The same is true for us. Like, I don't care if you teach in St. Louis or Florida or Texas or Washington State, like whatever. I realize I just said one city and three states, but I think you know what I'm going for. It doesn't really matter. Like, we're we're trying to build students who are musicians for life and students who are are most musical in whatever way we can help them be that way. And that's not to say that if I were to come in your classroom, I would do things totally different, but that's because I'm a different person and I'm a different teacher and I'm a different musician and I would do my best to help your kids, which would be my kids. This is getting confusing, but I would help them be the most musical that they can be. And that's really the point that we're all in it for this common goal. So let's not get too crazy about the labels. And so today, 
what I wanted to do was give you a very, very brief, not synopsis, but like briefly touch on some of the core points that I see in each of these four four approaches I'm going to talk about. And I chose these four because these are um, those that I feel I have a good amount of experience and a pretty good handle on. Um, If I'm going to be honest, Obviously, I feel like I'm strongest with my Kodai and then probably least strong with my um, music learning theory. And so what I'm planning to do to kind of even all that out, you know, Dr. Galt was on last week to talk about Kodai-inspired teaching. And as the season goes on here with the Anacrusic podcast, I'm bringing on lots of folks to talk more specifically about all the things that I might not understand. So this is kind of the starting point for where we're going for the rest of the season. So before I get started with the first um, approach that I'm going to discuss, which is going to be Gordon Music Learning Theory, I just want to reiterate that this is not meant to be a comprehensive conversation about these approaches because there's so much of that coming from folks who are also living and breathing these in their classrooms or in their daily work. Um, So I want to leave all of those sort of hard-hitting questions and some of the real nitty-gritty with those folks who are coming on the podcast. So actually, next week's episode is with a Gordon music learning theory expert who practices this with her children each and every week and teaches at training courses. And she and I had a wonderful conversation about lots of things that I still have questions about, even though I've taken a level. Um, And so if you are looking for some of those like hard hitting, like really get to the heart of all the things like that is going to be a great interview for you. But I did want to talk about three things that I know of um, in the Gordon approach to teaching that I either resonate with or I still have questions about. So the first is one that I resonate with quite a bit. So the whole idea of teaching music from the standpoint of language acquisition, I think, is a really important thing to consider as a music educator. So In Gordon Music Learning Theory, you talk a lot about aural oral experiences and how students are hearing and speaking and they should learn and babble just like they do with whatever their their, um, mother tongue language is with music. And so this whole idea that students should speak before they write, they should hear before they speak, all of that good stuff is something that really resonates with me. Something else that really resonates with me that is related to that is the idea of creating context and the idea that patterns or rather um, like rhythmic and melodic elements don't exist in isolation. Like you never see just a ta, you never see just a titi, you never see just a so, you often see a ta, ta, titi, ta, or you see a so, me, so, la. And so there's always some sort of context and, and then even a larger context and then even a harmonic or a formal context on top of that um, when it comes to music. And so I love this idea of approaching music, teaching, and learning from the standpoint that students should have the opportunity to experience lots of different musical contexts so that they can learn through discrimination, they can learn what something is by what it is not, and that is a huge tenet of music learning theory. Something that I still sort of wrestle with a little bit is Gordon's concept of audiation. So if you're not familiar with this term, it does not mean inner hearing or um, 
yeah, it doesn't mean inner hearing, which I think a lot of people use the two terms interchangeably. And I, from my understanding, that is a little bit an error. So audiation has to do with hearing something and then processing it. So the idea is that when sound exists, it is not music in and of itself. When sound happens, I guess, it doesn't become music until the listener hears it and processes it it in the mind. And so everybody's going to process music a little bit differently because we all have different contexts. We all have different schemas. We all have different experiences. And so audiation is something that really happens internally. Now, this is something that's tricky for me because I understand it conceptually, but I think to myself, okay, so how do I know if a student is really successfully audiating? And that's a question that we will explore in later episodes. And the last thing that I think is pretty synonymous with Gordon music learning theory, for better or for worse, probably more for worse, is aptitude testing. And I say it is for worse that it's associated because I think that there is a really negative outlook on aptitude testing, um, at least from my conversations with colleagues. And after kind of delving into it a little bit more, I want to explain where I think most music learning theory folks are coming from when it comes to this aptitude test. So if you're not familiar, most music learning theory practitioners will conduct a music aptitude test with their students, and it is brought to their students as a game, and it is a tool or a measure to help teachers understand where their students are and their potential and what they might be able to do in terms of differentiating instruction and scaffolding instruction to help all of their students be more successful. Now, before we go down the rabbit hole of like, oh, another test, blah, 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 I think that the idea of this, regardless of whether you use the Gordon-specific aptitude test or something different, is an important thing to consider because it is important to have assessment throughout a learning process not only during and after, but maybe as a starting point as well. And whether it's quantitative or qualitative, I want to find ways to help my students be as musical as they can possibly be. So trying to find a way to figure out where they are so that I can figure out where I might be able to lead them is really important to me as a teacher. So I think that this idea of aptitude testing is not all bad (laughs) at all. Um, I think that it is definitely something that um, we could take the inspiration from, even if we don't want to use it exactly, um, to help our students be the best musicians that they can be. So that wasn't even half of what Gordon Music Learning Theory is, but I just wanted to share a couple of things that um, I've been thinking about when it came to that approach, and I'm going to continue to do that for the others. So the next that I want to talk about is Delcro's Inspired Teaching, and I have done a couple of training courses with Delcro's, and what I love about it is 
I love movement. (laughs) I find myself really, really drawn to using movement in the music classroom. And it's something that just feels like home to me, even though I'm not a trained dancer by any means. I just, I really love finding ways to help my students be most musical. And I find the more that I teach, the more students I have who need that kinesthetic um, musicianship opportunity. So for Del Crow's Eurythmics, there are two types of movement, and one is purposeful, and the other is classified as the plastique or the creative. So purposeful movement has to do with some of the things that you would maybe see as more overt music making. So like walking to the beat or showing the phrase of a song, right? Like making rainbow motions or something. Whereas plastique or creative movement is inspired by music. And it's inspired by, but it's not without any parameters. So even though students have the opportunity to listen and respond to music in a way that they see fit, it's also something that it's important for the students to be staying true to the music and really showing what they hear instead of something that's completely abstract, if that makes sense. So what I love about Del Crows is that there's sort of these two different realms of of movement and the idea that you can lead students through these purposeful movement exercises and then find ways for them to be even more um, creative and even more inspired through a creative movement experience that is not necessarily just totally off the rails. So this really, really works well when you talk about how Del Crows can relate to Orf Schulwerk. So Orf Schulwerk, one of my things that I love the most about it is that it incorporates so many different media that it's hard not to find a way for your students to be as musical as they can be because we have speech, we have song, we have instruments, we have um, barred instruments, we have recorder, we have unpitched instruments, we have um, um, singing and dancing and and pretty much anything that you can think of. And one of my favorite things about oral work is that not only do students have the opportunity to choose which way they feel the most musical, but then they have the opportunity to try other ways to be most musical. So that is one of the things that I absolutely adore about it. The other thing that is really inspirational for me when it comes to oral work is this idea of having um, the, the creative agency or improvisation throughout a learning process. And that really gives kids the opportunity to make choices. Like they get to decide things if you are giving them opportunities to improvise throughout an entire process. And I think that that's something that can be lost really, really easily because we think, oh, improvisation shouldn't happen until later on in a learning sequence or later on in my um, instructional sequence. And I think that actually the more that we do it earlier, the more ownership we give our kids over whatever it is we're trying to get them to do. The other thing I love about ORF is that the performances tend to be fairly comprehensive. So there's an opportunity for students to play instruments and then other students to dance and then to switch. Or there's an opportunity to incorporate literature or there's opportunity to incorporate drama. And you know, that's not to say that that is not possible with other pedagogical approaches, but it's really inherent in what you see happening in a ORF work environment. 
And so that's something that I really admire and something that I want to incorporate more with my students where not only do they get the chance to show me how how musical they can be in many different mediums, but also that we can create something really comprehensive in terms of musicianship and performance because there are so many different people and different children who have different strengths to share when it comes time to do so. And last but not least, I told you this was going to be super short and sweet about those things that just really jump out at me about each of these approaches. Um, There's Kodai Inspired Teaching, and I've talked about it a million times, and there is an episode about myth-busting Kodai Inspired Teaching. Um, But there are four things that I just, I, I really love about it, and the first is that singing is first. And I think if you think about, um kids, you know, if we're going to talk about language acquisition, okay, well, they have to speak it. They have to hear it. They have to speak it. Their voice is their first instrument, so we need to be singing. The second is this idea of finding quality materials, and if you listen to last week's episode, you heard Dr. Galt and I talking about, okay, well, what does quality really mean? And quality just means that it's something that has meaning, whether it has meaning to you or your students, and hopefully both. It's something that can you can draw lots of rich material from for your classroom. The next thing that I love about Kodai Inspire Teaching is that there is intentionally sequenced instruction. And I'm not even going to go into this because y'all know me and (laughs) you know that I'm all about like purposeful, sequential, joyful. So obviously this is where I feel at home. And last but not least is this idea that there's musical literacy and fluency and that the folk repertoire that we bring to our kids is sort of like this gateway drug to all of this wonderful music outside of the quote-unquote simple folk music. Whether that's world music or great art music or pop music or whatever it is, we have the opportunities to create our students or help our students to become, rather, these musically fluent people who will go on and perpetuate music in our culture. And I really believe that that's possible. I believe that that's possible whether you are a Kodai-inspired teacher, an Orb-inspired teacher, a Delcros-inspired teacher, a Gordon-inspired teacher, or like Bob's Music Method-inspired teacher. So the whole point of this episode was not to say, oh, look at this. Here are all of the things. This is what Gordon Music Learning Theory is. I'm not the person for that. The idea of this episode was to say, let's blur some lines here are some things that I really love about each of these approaches. And this is just like scratching the surface, guys. Like I could go on and on all day about all of these, but I want to keep it to under 30 minutes today because last week was long. Um, So here are some things that I really love about these approaches. And maybe there's other things that I don't love. And maybe there's some other misconceptions that I don't love. Um, And maybe there's some other things that people who subscribe to these different approaches do that I don't love. But that doesn't mean that I can't draw inspiration from them. And that doesn't mean that there's something to be gained from knowing a little bit about everything else that is out there. So I hope that this was helpful. If you're interested in knowing more nitty gritty, stay tuned. If you are interested in seeing some of the live videos that I did very early in the morning in the Pacific Northwest on these different chapters in the book Teaching General Music um, about these four different approaches plus world music pedagogy, go ahead and join the Facebook group. They're all saved under videos. If you have any questions, you can feel free to pull them up. 
put them up in the group. I'd love to chat with you in there. And there's lots of folks who would love to share as well. So until next time, guys, thanks so much for listening. And make sure you check out that mutedpodcast.com website. There is lots of great stuff there. Thanks for listening to the Anacrusic Podcast. For more details and information from this episode, check out the show notes on anacrusic.com. While you're there, join the Tap Insiders community on Facebook, where you can collaborate with Anne and other music educators. Also, if you found this episode entertaining or informative, don't forget to share with your music besties and leave a review on iTunes. The Anacrusic Podcast is a proud member of the Music Teacher Development Podcast Network. The Muted Network provides support in the form of audio-on-demand programming designed by and for music educators. You can find more information about our network at mutedpodcasts.com.